From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Biden administration's first defense budget request is scheduled for a May 3rd release date. Sources inside the department tell Breaking Defense that budget's top line will be around last year's base budget top line of $696 billion. It would be the second year in a row the budget top line didn't keep pace with inflation. The Defense Department services buying organizations need action plans to account for spending better, according to the Government Accountability Office. GAO's Tim DiNapoli writes the department still has open recommendations from 2016 to track services acquisition for the future year's defense program. Services spending's been on the GAO's high-risk list since 2001. One of the Air Force's oldest aircraft may be next in line for a DevSecOps upgrade. A request for information from Thursday asks for industry input to move the C-130 program office and its contractors to an agile cloud-based environment. FCW reports the program office expects to release an RFP in the April to June timeframe. The Air Force and the Pentagon's Cost Assessment and Program Evaluation Office will review the mix of tactical aircraft the Air Force plans to use in the future. Breaking Defense reports Air Force Chief of Staff General C.Q. Brown says the study will focus on facts and not just opinions. General Hawk Carlisle, U.S. Air Force retired, is president and CEO of the National Defense Industrial Association. Hawk, it's good to see you, and I call on you today not as the head of NDIA, but as someone who knows well and loves the Air Force. What would you like to see come out of this review of the force regarding the mix of aircraft that it has? Well, thanks, Francis. It's great to be here. It's great to see you as well. And uh, th I think this is incredibly important. You know, if you look at what the Air Force has gone through over the last several decades, uh, Ford based in Europe and the Pacific, Ford deployments to the Europe and Pacific, um, multiple, multiple deployments to the Middle East, many to the Africa, Homeland uh, Security, the Air Sovereignty missions, as well as training. It's just the demand signal on the United States Air Force fighter aircraft is incredible. And we have to figure out a way to make it sustainable. So I think what I'm looking for is one is uh, how many how many different fleets can we support in the in the Air Force? And then how many of each one of those fleets do we need? If you think about it right now, we have two and we're going to three significantly different F-15 models. We have the F-16, we have the A-10, we have the F-35, we have the F-22. And each one of those needs a training pipeline, a part supply pipeline pipeline and and we just got to figure out what's sustainable in the long run what do you do how do you define the term sustainable and how would you like to see the force define sustainable given the changes in the nature of the landscape that you just laid out is that definition the same as it was two years ago or five years ago well yeah i think it is i think we have to get a realistic demand signal of what it's what it's going to be like and you know again that changes uh, with the national defense strategy over time but you know we're 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 talking great power competition so a sustainable uh, quality force that can deal with the great power competition of china and russia and to lesser extent uh, iran and north korea and then whatever else is going to be required of the Air Force. It's going to include air sovereignty mission. And then, you know, we'll see what the uh, re re demand signal is for the Middle East. Um, but, I, you know, it's something that we can keep trained ready airmen. 
and aircraft uh, that are available for the missions that the nation asks them to do. And, you know, that's really dependent upon how it looks with respect to the national defense strategy. Is this then maybe a challenging environment without a national defense strategy since uh, 2018? Is this a challenging environment to undertake this or is this the right time to undertake this anticipating a new national defense strategy in the next year or so? Well, I think it's uh, I think it's the right time to take it on because I think to some extent, you know, it's going to the ability to create a sustainable path forward is going to influence what we do and the national defense strategy going forward. We know that there's still great power competition. We know what our potential adversaries in China and Russia are trying to do. And that has to be the first priority. So I think that this is the right time to do it, in my opinion. Uh, General Brown uh, said that this study will include a clean sheet design for a new fourth and a half or fifth uh, gen minus uh, replacement for the F-16, which you mentioned a moment ago. What what does that aircraft, what would you like to see that aircraft encompass? What are the capabilities that it maybe should add over what the F-16 can do today? Uh, and and what uh, where does that fit into the broader mosaic of the Air Force's fleet? Well, I think the first thing I'd say, I, I think uh, General Brown's right. I, I think he's spot on. But uh, to do this, it would require retiring some other fleets. And, and that's one thing that, as we all know, is kind of difficult to do these days. But you can't add another another aircraft without uh, starting to reduce the number of fleets of training and supply uh, part supply pipeline that you need. So if you do this and it's a clean sheet new airplane, you're going to have to you're going to have to retire fleets of airplanes, in, in my opinion. And the the biggest factor I think, and I think what General Brown's getting after, is you really need an, a, an airplane that has a plug and play open systems architecture where you can change sensor capability, you can change communications capability, you can put things in, and you can continually upgrade it, where you keep the you know the airframe, the outer mold line, but you have the ability to to continually upgrade it with sensors and and comm suites and and uh, command and control capability. So it really has to be a very adaptable uh, airplane that can be serially improved over time. And I imagine what's exciting for a pilot like yourself, Hawk, is that the Air Force now has demonstrated that it can make those changes even in mid-flight. And so that's this is not pie in the sky as it might have been just a few years ago. This is what you're suggesting there is eminently doable in the next generation aircraft of all types, not just what replaces the F-16. Uh, yes, that's exactly right, Francis. I, it, it's doable. It's not, I mean, it, it's just a question of, you know, having the right airframe and, and doing the systems engineering and the test and development and having working with industry for the open systems architecture so that you can plug and play different capabilities in the airplane as you continue to improve it. And it is definitely doable. What uh, General Brown also touched on the idea of the size and structure of the force and uh, suggested that maybe the 386 squadron number is open for conversation as well. Uh, we're seeing the same thing in the Navy, the size and structure of the fleet and the composition of it underneath the top line number. Is, is there a number that makes sense to you at this point or is this part of the conversation that you believe the force needs to have, Hawk? I think it's a part of the conversation the force needs to have. 386, I mean, I think that was a great mark on the wall and I think that was a great study done. But I think we need to look at the organization of the Air Force. I think we need to look at the demand signal based on the national defense strategy. We need to look at the joint force and what the joint force needs from its Air Force. So I, I think 386 was a great start, but I think that dialogue uh, and the real uh, examination of what 
the Air Force looks like in the future, given the great power competition we're in, I think that's a dialogue that uh, includes how many squadrons the Air Force is actually going to be. General, thanks very much for your insight. It's great to have you back on the program. Thanks, friends. Great talking to you, my friend. Up next, sea service strategy starts where you might not expect it. Straight ahead on Government Matters, new ideas for what the Pentagon should sink its money into might not be so new after all. You're watching WJLA 24-7. Welcome back to Chair and Ranking Member of the House Sea Power and Projection Forces Subcommittee. Both say the Navy should get a larger chunk of the defense budget. The Navy spends about $20 billion on shipbuilding now. Rear Admiral Sinclair Harris, U.S. Navy retired, is National Vice President of Military Affairs at the Navy League. Sink, thanks for coming on. I appreciate your time today. Uh, new policy recommendations that you and your colleagues at the Navy League make, but I was struck by the fact that before you talked about policies or platforms, you talk about people, you write it's people, men and women, sons and daughters, spouses and military families that make up the core of the sea services. Why'd you go to people first instead of hardware or policy? Well, thank you, uh, Francis. I appreciate your uh, pointing that out. Uh, that was intentional because we have to remind our American people that we are a maritime nation. We need our sons and daughters, our men and women, regardless of race, creed, ethnicity, uh, to join in the fight. Uh, whether they go in and serve in uniform, like I was fortunate enough to do uh, in any of the sea services, uh, or they go into industry as the skilled practitioners uh, that we need working in the industrial base to make it strong and robust. It's the men and women of our great country uh, that we need to serve both at sea and supporting uh, the sea service and the industrial base. Another element that struck me as interesting here is that the first policy that you went to was ratification of the law of the sea. Why is that important that, uh, to become a, an official part of? You know, this has been an argument uh, that's bounced around Washington for some time. Um, and I believe every single uh, CNO and commandant of uh, Marine Corps and the Coast Guard have all said that we need to ratify it. It's lawfare. And the Chinese are not playing fair. And because we do not have a full seat at the table, it lowers our authority and ability to uh, defend against illegal things that China is doing in the South China Sea, their aggressive fisheries, uh, what Russia is doing in the Arctic and the protection of uh, our resources. So we need to have the ability to fight the law fair or legal warfare part of this by being full members of the UNCLOS, and ratification is key. It struck me as interesting that then you got, after dealing with the people element, law of the sea, then you start to get to some of the nuts and bolts, as it were, um, modernizing the Navy, and you refer to the CNO, Admiral Gilday, um, listing the Columbia-class sub as the number one acquisition priority. There's a lot more priorities, though, on that list, aren't there, Sink? Yes, sir. And, you know, obviously uh, our nuclear deterrent, especially in this age of great power competition, becomes more important, not less. Um, so we list the undersea assets, the Columbia, as being number one with a bullet. 
but the other ones is you know maintaining the readiness. And we fought hard. The Navy has fought hard, as well, all the services have, in increasing its sustainability and its readiness uh, for its platforms. That must continue. There is no break in or pause in the geopolitical uh, affairs happening at sea. At the same time, as we maintain our readiness, we need to increase our lethality. And you've seen that in a number of the systems, weapon systems that are being put in. I just saw a note about lasers the other day. There's a lot that we could cover in the minutes that we have because you address the uh, uh, Commandant of the Marine Corps and his planning guidance. We could do a whole segment just on that and probably should at some point, Sink. Um, you also refer to the Coast Guard and the icebreaker platform uh, that they're developing. And uh, unfortunately, it, it appears uh, not fast enough to meet the timeline that we need in the Merchant Marine as well. How do you how do you prioritize all of those sea service uh, needs sink in, in advocating for them on the Hill? Well, it's part of what has been called uh, the national fleet by some, uh, and looking at all of American sea power. Uh, I'm going to take a, a, a pause here and, and tell you, one of the books I've recently reread is uh, this thing called To Provide and Maintain a Navy by uh, uh, Professor Henry J. Hendricks. And I think it's a great book, but it talks about the primacy of the naval strategy in supporting free seas, supporting American prosperity. And, and I know that Congress has got lots of priorities they've got to fight with, but the importance of maintaining American sea power is more important now than ever. You point out something there that we haven't talked about on this program before, but I like the idea of it, Sink, and that's the national fleet. And I, it, it strikes me as I, as I read through the strategy, the uh, recommendations that you and your colleagues at the Navy League are making. That's the way you look at it, isn't it? You're not thinking about the Navy fleet, the Coast Guard fleet, Merchant Marine fleet, Marine Corps inventory. You're thinking about this holistically. Is that fair to say? Yes, sir. And we have to. I mean, that is what uh, we need to to protect American interests, uh, both here in our, uh, our shores and across the globe. That's what we need to ensure that our allies and partners remain with us and are not uh, disturbed, perturbated, pushed around uh, by uh, China, by uh, Russia, by Iran, North Korea, or others, uh, and that they know that we've got their back. Sinclair Harris, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you back. Hey, thank you very much, Francis, and have a great uh, 2021. You can find a link to that Navy League report at govmatters.tv slash resources. Up next, war games at the Defense Department. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how to measure success to see if war games work. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. Climate change will be an element of the Biden administration's defense policies, including when revamping its war games. The Defense Department's expanded war gaming initiatives over the past several years, but questions exist about how well they work. Yuna Wong is research analyst in the Joint Advanced Warfighting Division, the Institute for Defense Analyses, founder of the Women's War Gaming Network. She's writing about war gaming in War on the Rocks. And you and your colleague Garrett Heath write this to begin. Much of what the Defense Department calls wargaming is not actually wargaming. What's the difference between what the department's doing and what the direct definition of wargaming is? 
Uh, yes, so you've already um, uh, touched upon a, a controversial topic, which is what defines war gaming. Uh, so some people would say for something to be a real war game, you have to have a uh, representation of your forces, you take an action, the adversary gets to take uh, make a decision, you have to live with the consequences of your decision, and that this keeps going on. So it's really the how does it unfold when both sides are making decisions, and the idea is you get to try to make uh, decisions against a, a dynamic scenario or a thinking adversary. Uh, what much of what does go on in the Department of Defense is sort of there. People can be presented with a scenario, and then you determine what you want to do, which is a little bit more of a planning exercise. And there's nothing wrong with planning exercises, but it doesn't always test what you're trying to do or sort of question your assumptions. It's in the way that I think could be more useful. You list in this piece four big questions the department should ask before uh, it, it really moves out on a new wargaming initiative. The first is, is the quality of defense wargaming sufficient? How does one measure the quality of wargaming? Um, oftentimes as wargamers, we go to these conferences and it almost feels like going to church where you recite the articles of the faith, including again about how Wargaming helped the United States in the interwar years, but there is no real assessment of whether or not wargaming works at the organizational learning level, at the individual level. Wargaming, we believe it's posited to help us think of new ways of doing things, to help us question our assumptions, to better prepare for the adversary, but we don't measure them. Even in applications such as training and education, we don't see how it compares to other interventions. Does it really help us to be more creative? Does it really help us to think about new ideas? There is no systematic assessment. And that ties, it appears to me at least, to your second question, which is whether wargaming does in fact improve learning and innovation. That's the whole point, right? It is, it is. And again, we almost have, um, there's a line from the movie, Lord of the Rings, that says, you know, history became legend, legend became myth. Right, so we, again, the wargamers, we go to church and it's like in the interwar years, wargaming with the fleet and the Naval War College helped anticipate the Pacific campaign, but we don't actually even have case study research to discuss what variables helped that, like what was the model of institutional learning, even if some wargaming helps, the Germans wargamed quite a bit um, leading up to and during World War II, the Japanese wargamed, so there were clearly other things besides wargaming that helped organizations that wargame or entities that wargamed learn or not learn, and we don't really have research that helped that helped explain that. The third question that you and your colleague uh, Mr. Heath ask is: There sufficient wargaming capability and capacity across the defense enterprise? How does one measure that capacity, Yuna? So that is another thing we do not have a good um, measurement of. We do not have good assessments of. I was involved with many of the conference organizing that went out, that started, um, uh, you know, so around 2015 was when this uh, real interest in reinvigorating defense wargaming came about. And so some of us did conference organizing, uh, conference organizing for a while to what we call feed the newbies. Uh, but then even in 2016, the, the Military Operations Research Society uh, put on a special meeting for wargaming, and I was the co-chair, and there was broad agreement within the wargaming community that there were not enough senior experienced wargamers to meet demand. 
And then that leads directly to, if you don't have enough experienced people doing wargaming, what does the quality look like? So you have, uh, I, I think, kind of answered my question about the fourth of your four questions, which is, what's the state of the wargaming workforce? Sounds like it might not be as healthy as it could be. So one of the things that I um, uh, did previously was uh, I did once write a report that sort of surveyed what many defense wargaming centers were doing, their capabilities, their skill sets, their tools. And then I was, uh, after I wrote the report, I came across a book from decades ago that had done the same thing in sort of 1968. And I realized if that book was true, the skill sets within the defense wargaming community had um, actually atrophied quite a bit that we were not putting on, or the, or the Department of Defense, especially certain specific organizations, were not really putting on sophisticated war games anymore, but maybe really the simple, here's a scenario, okay, what's your plan? And then let's discuss format, which again does not get you to, and then this happens, and then this happens, and now what are you going to do? You didn't, you know, what you thought you were going to do, uh, well, the adversary interrupted that, or it didn't go as planned. So now, well, now what are you going to do? So they miss out on that part. Yuna, thanks very much for joining me. It's a fascinating piece. I appreciate your conversation. Thank you for having me. You can find a link to that piece at govmatters.tv slash resources. If you missed any of our programs, they're on our website too. And you get a preview of each show when you sign up for our daily program guide. You text GOVMATTERS to 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.